So if you have been with us uh, for the last three weeks, or if you've had a chance to uh, catch the sermons online or on podcasts, then you know that we've been walking uh, chapter by chapter through the book of Ruth. Uh, One of the reasons that we're doing this is, maybe you're getting tired of hearing this already, but Ruth is a very carefully crafted story. Uh, Of course, it's detailing historic events. It's detailing real things that happen to real people. It's not just a fairy tale. Uh, And that's going to become especially clear as we finish out this chapter. But a lot of care went into the way that it was set up. It was put together intentionally in order order to be uh, memorable, in order to take the reader or the listener on the journey to have the dramatic tension of a good movie. And so he spent a lot of time comparing moments in this book to maybe how they would feel if they were a movie, highlighting the choices that the narrator, that the author of this book makes in the story to attempt to, uh, to draw us in, to bring us in uh, to this story. And we've been very intentionally walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this book in order to experience it as it was originally intended to be experienced, in order to walk it as it was originally intended Uh, to be walked. And along the way, we've been teasing or mentioning that there is a twist ending coming up, that there is a moment that is coming that is going to change or shape or recontextualize everything that came beforehand. So today, we get to go through uh, this last chapter, and we get to sort of hold our breaths together through some high-tension moments, and we get to figure out the answer to some of these big questions that we've been asking through this book, the question of the provision of food uh, and family. Food's already in many ways been taken care of in this story, uh, but what we're looking for now is at Ruth and Naomi, is at Ruth, this Moabite from Moab, this outsider foreigner widow, is she going to find a place to belong? Is she going to be redeemed? And so I want to do a very quick recap of the story up to here, just again to sort of establish uh, the foundation for what we're talking about today to lay the, lay the groundwork for sort of the dramatic tension that we're stepping into. So the story begins, uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons leave Bethlehem, leave Israel and head out into foreign land because of a famine. They're driven out in search of food and they go to this sort of foreign pagan land of Moab and things immediately go off the rails for them. Elimelech passes away. The two sons, probably much to the dismay of their mother, Naomi, marry foreign women. And then these sons both pass away. Over the course of 10 years, it is just tragedy after tragedy. And so then bitter and broken and empty with nothing left. But hearing that the famine is over in her hometown, Naomi travels back to Israel. And she intends to leave these daughters-in-law behind so that they can start new lives, but Ruth refuses to leave. She clings to Naomi, and the two of them then head off to Bethlehem, where the barley harvest is beginning. So Ruth goes to gather leftover barley from a nearby field, which is a provision in the Israelite law for foreigners, and it just so happens that this is the field of Boaz who is in your Bibles referred to as a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer. He's a member of the extended family who has the right, and more than that, actually the responsibility to support the widow of his relative. And so Boaz and Ruth 
immediately connect, and Boaz provides generously for Ruth and Naomi, and weeks go by like this, this relationship sort of slowly developing. And Darren last week got to walk you through this sort of fascinating and unorthodox courtship process, which is very strange to our modern sensibilities, where Ruth kind of takes initiative and sort of proposes to Boaz in a bit of a unique way, and Boaz accepts Ruth's proposal here, but we receive in the midst of this crushing news. This romance has been growing, the anticipation has been on the rise, but Boaz drops his huge blow and admits to Naomi that while he is a guardian redeemer, there is in fact another in the town who is closer than them, him, another who has the rights to the land, the rights to claim that guardian redeemer place before Boaz does. And so we end chapter 3 last week on maybe the biggest cliffhanger in the book. Boaz is off to find this other kinsman redeemer and Ruth and Naomi can do nothing but sit and wait and wonder. And for the last week we have had to sit and wait and wonder. But closure is coming soon. For at the end of chapter 3, Naomi says, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. We are in the end game. The pieces are coming together. Everything is in motion, and the stakes are clear. So now we get to watch as the audience to see how this is all going to play out. So join me in your Bibles uh, one more time as we read through chapter 4 together and come to the conclusion of our story. The beginning of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. So we've talked about this, this kinsman redeemer or this guardian redeemer idea a few times through the book, this idea that there was a system in place for your clan or your family group to support and provide for you if you fell on hard times. Uh, and it's a really important concept to get if we want to understand the book of Ruth. And it's important to note that in Boaz's time, all these things were tied into a culture that relied very much or cared very much about the concepts of shame and honor, honor for doing the right things, Shame for doing the wrong things or failing to do the right thing. Uh, and to get an idea of maybe how they felt about some of this, uh, I want to flip back very quickly to Deuteronomy 25. Um, and there's a passage there that talks about marriage in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, the protection of widows and the protection of the family line. And it just gives us a concept of, of how important some of these things were uh, to the Jewish people, to the Israelite people at that time. It says this, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. And that man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. 
Yikes. The point here is that there is significant shame in not providing for or helping a widow in your family. It is a shameful thing to deny that help. And again, this is all very foreign to the way that we think about things, to sort of our modern sensibilities, to our modern view of marriage, certainly. But back then, this was a known and understood and respected way of thinking about these things. So here we have Boaz, who has tracked down this guardian redeemer, and in the context of all these customs, which will have been familiar to both of them, he invites this man to sit down. And one last thing I want to note before we move on is he says to this guy, he says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And the phrase, my friend, here, is not really about referring to this guy as a friend. It's actually a bit of a dismissive term. It's what you do when you can't remember someone's name. When you enter into conversations and you go, hey, bud, or, or the, the very Christian, hey, brother. But the narrative is making a point here. Boaz probably knew this guy's name. And the author of the book probably knew this guy's name. But the author is making a point in saying he's a nobody. He uh, doesn't matter. He's a what's-his-face. He's sort of, it's a very dismissive thing that he's saying about this man. In a book here in Ruth, where names are very important, where names carry a lot of meaning, the fact that the author chooses not to give this guy a name says a lot about uh, maybe what he thinks about this guy or what his value to the story is. So keep that in mind as we continue here. Verse 2, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. So Boaz is gathering witnesses together to make sure this conversation holds legal weight, and as he does so, a crowd probably gathers, they see that something's about to go down, and I want you to pay attention here because what Boaz does is so sly or sneaky, he plays this out, you can tell he's thought about how this conversation is going to go, he's sort of plotted this out like a chess match, and so you can see as he works here what's going on, it's very, very smart. He says to the guardian redeemer in verse 3, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except for you, and I am next in line. So that is an offer that this guy couldn't possibly refuse. It's served up on a golden platter. He gets a bunch of land that's going to his family. He gets the honor of helping out his clan, and all he is responsible for is this woman, this old woman Naomi, this old widow past child-rearing age, there's a bit of cost there to support this lady, but generally it's a huge deal for this guy. It's a great investment. And I will redeem it, he said. And our hearts sink. And you can imagine that Ruth and Naomi being sort of the active schemers that they are. They might have been out here in the crowd listening to this. And in this moment, their hopes are crushed. Instead of being with Boaz... This upstanding man, this man of God, they're going to end up with what's-his-face, with no name. But Boaz knows exactly what he is doing. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, their dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. 
I forgot to mention this one little detail. If you take that land in Naomi, you are also taking on Ruth, the foreigner, who is of childbearing age, who will probably have children, and that child will grow up and carry on the line and receive the land, and now you don't get to keep this land, you're just stewarding it for Ruth and her future children, and it's not going to your sons, it's staying in Elimelech's family with Ruth's child. And at this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. And this is the climactic moment. This is Rocky Balboa winning the fight. The music swells up. It's this triumphant picture as this no-name contender admits defeat and the hero receives the sandal as he hands it over. Basically, the symbolism with that sandal is you have the right to walk on what was mine to walk on. You have the right to my land in that way. And so Boaz is in this triumphant moment and, and, and these are the last words that we're going to hear him speak in this book, this sort of speech that he gives as he acknowledges sort of his victory here. He says, Then Boaz announces to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. So let's take a moment to just recognize the journey of Ruth through this story. In chapter 1, verses 20, verse 20, she's Ruth the Moabite from Moab. In chapter 2, verse 10, she's Ruth the foreigner. In chapter 2, verse 13, she's a slave in Boaz's field. In 3 verse 9, she's a servant wanting marriage. And now, in chapter 4 verse 10, she is a wife. She is Boaz's wife. She's a member of the family. It's this beautiful picture of being drawn in from the outside into God's family. And listen to how the elders pray over this. It's a powerful prayer. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Rachel and Leah, who together had 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. What an unbelievable blessing to this foreign woman. They say, may God be faithful to you here as he was to them there, this great family in our history. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. So the whole Perez and Tamar situation is to put it lightly, it's a bit of a messy one. Uh, you can look it up in Genesis 38 if you want to. Uh, we don't have time to get into it today, but, but long story short, Tamar was a Canaanite woman, a foreigner woman who God used in a special way to carry on the line of Israel in sort of an unexpected, powerful way. Uh, she was used uh, to carry on Israel's line. So, 
Verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. It's a funny thing. There's been all this build-up, all this time spent on the journey here. We had all of chapter 2 to describe a single day. We had all of chapter 3 to describe one conversation in one night on the threshing floor. And here now, in one verse, a marriage and a baby. But don't miss out on an incredibly important detail here. We've talked a lot about how the narrator doesn't really bring up God in this story. We've mentioned that a few times over the weeks, that the narrator himself, the author of this book, doesn't mention God. But that's not entirely true. There are two places in this book where the author speaks about God. The first is in Ruth 1, verse 6, where it says, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. And once here, in Ruth chapter 1, the Lord is the one who provides food. And here in chapter 4, verse 13, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. The Lord provided family. Those two big questions that we've been asking, how are they going to get food? And how are they going to get family? The narrator, the author, wants to make it clear that the Lord is the one providing both of these things. Verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So seven, when seven comes up in the Bible, it's often the number of perfection. So we get this picture of total triumph here. It's this contrast from the total tragedy of Ruth chapter 1, coming back empty and bitter and broken, and now with these women in Bethlehem saying, your daughter-in-law, this foreigner widow, is better to you than seven sons, is better to you than the perfect family. What a picture of God's redemptive grace in our lives. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. So if we continue the movie metaphor, this is the moment where you start to get up from your seat. Your hearts are warm. The screen goes black. This image of Naomi and this beautiful baby, a grandma and a grandbaby, and your hearts are full. Your cheeks may be a little bit wet. It feels good. It's a beautiful story. You start to gather your things, you leave, you're walking towards the exit, maybe the credits are already rolling, but suddenly the screen lights up again. There's another scene, and like any great twist, this is going to change everything that came before it. It's going to make you read the entire story again with new eyes, with a new perspective. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. And your emotions change from warm and sentimental love to awe and shock and wonder. Ruth, this foreigner, this small story is the great-grandmother of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history. This is how God in the darkest time in Israel's history, in a place where there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes, this is how 
God was providing for them and paving the way for the greatest king that the original readers of this book had ever known. This story of this foreigner woman was building up to the greatest redemption story in Israel's history. And just to drive the point home, the author includes a genealogy of ten generations to go look how God has been working over the last ten generations, building to this place. Look how God has taken these stories of pain and loss and built them together into great hope. Verse 18, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the, was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And that is the story of Ruth. The story of a redeemer God who is drawing us towards himself, who is working behind the scenes in our little stories in a way that beyond our wildest expectations in miraculous and supernatural and providential ways is connecting our individual stories of God in our ordinary into a larger story of God's plan to redeem the world, of God's plan to bring about a new kingdom. So in the time that we have left, what I want to do is take a little bit of a look at what we can learn from this story, what we learn from these characters. Uh, We spent a lot of time in chapter 2 and 3 talking about Boaz as a character that in many ways represents or can be looked at uh, as God. And, And it's important to note here to remind ourselves that Boaz is not God. Boaz is Boaz. Uh, Not everything is a one-to-one reflection in terms of who God is. It's not a perfect analogy. It's not a perfect stand-in. But as we watch these characters interact, we can see the character of God come through in powerful ways. We can see the character of God come through in the choices that they make. And in this chapter especially, what we see is what it takes to redeem. What it takes to be the kinsman redeemer that Boaz was. Uh, And I saw a different pastor, David Platt, talking about this, and I loved the way that he characterized it or put it together. So I'm borrowing from him a little bit here. This is what we learn from Ruth, from the character of Boaz, and and maybe even more specifically from the interaction between Boaz and, uh, and, and what's his name. This is what we see. First, in order to redeem... You must have the right to redeem. You have to have the authority to do that. Second, in order to redeem, you have to have the resources to redeem. You need to have the means or the money or the ability, the necessary resources to redeem. And third, in order to redeem, you must have the resolve to redeem. You need to want to do it. You have to make that choice. And when we look at this interaction between But when we look at this interaction, uh, that first kinsman redeemer, no name, he had the right to redeem. It was his by right. The law said, you have the right here. And he probably had the resources to redeem. The, The story doesn't make it entirely clear, but it's likely that he had the necessary wealth, that he had the necessary money, the necessary land in order to support uh, Naomi and Ruth. He probably had the resources but he didn't have the resolve. And when it came clear that the choice was going to require sacrifice, 
when it came clear that the choice was going to require a changing of his plan for the future, that he pulled back. He had the right, he had the resources, but he didn't have the resolve. Boaz then had the right, he had the resources, and most importantly, he had the resolve to redeem. He had a sacrificial love. He looked beyond himself. And so with all three of those pieces in place, he stepped up to the plate and was Ruth and Naomi's redeemer. And what a redemption it is. It's interesting to me that the author ends the book focused on Naomi, not Ruth. If you read the last few verses there, you'll see that it's Naomi who's got the child in her arms. It's Naomi who's being talked to by these other women. And, and, and the reason, I think, for this is that the arc that the author wants us to see most clearly is in many ways best reflected in Naomi, this journey from death to life, from curse to blessing or bitterness to happiness or emptiness to fullness or despair to hope. The book of Ruth opens with three funerals and it ends with a wedding and a baby. But of course, the story doesn't end with Ruth 4. The author of the book, the early readers of the book, looked to Ruth as a path to David. But for us today, there is another genealogy that immediately jumps to mind. And it's the first words of the New Testament. It's in Matthew 1 that point to a much greater king, to a much higher ruler, to a much more perfect kinsman redeemer. And let's turn there for just a moment to Matthew chapter 1. And there are lots of stories here that you can draw your attention to. Lots of names that you can find. But the ones that I want to draw you to uh, are the women that show up in this genealogy. Because it's very unusual for women to show up in genealogies. It's not a standard thing. Typically it's done through the male line. And so there was very, very strong intention in who was placed here uh, in the women. So as we look through we see in verse 3, we see Tamar, uh, the widow, uh, who is mentioned in that blessing that the elders gave earlier on. Tamar, this foreigner widow who continued the line of Israel. We see uh, Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who just happens to be Boaz's mother. If you look at this genealogy, that's another interesting just so happened that Boaz, who was put in this place to accept Ruth as one of his own, that he also had a foreigner outcast mother. So you can imagine why his heart may have been soft, why his doors may have been open to Ruth coming to join his family. It's another way in which you can see God orchestrating this thing long before. And then we see Ruth, of course. Ruth the Moabite. And then next up you have Solomon's mother. Uh, who had Solomon in an adulterous relationship with David. None of these women seem like they belong in a lineage for a perfect king. For, for a nationalistic group like Israel who cared about being the undefiled people of God, these are all black marks on the record. They're outsiders, they're pagans, they're sinners. But then the reason they're on this list is the same reason that we're here in this building. They were brought in from the outside. They were invited to a place they could never get to on their own. They were elevated to a level of honor and significance outside of their own power 
and outside of their own stories. And as it just so happens, coincidentally, this genealogy leads to in Matthew, in the city of bread, in the same place where generations earlier God provided for his people, he made a way forward through unexpected means. In that same town, a baby is born, not on the threshing floor, but in a stable, in a grain trough. A child is placed who is going to be the perfect kinsman redeemer for the whole world, who is going to draw in the outsiders and the pagans and the sinners and the widows and the Moabites, who is going to open his arms to the entire world. When I read Ruth, I look past three generations to David and all the way down that line in Matthew, all the way to our perfect kinsman redeemer through, who through his sacrifice and life and death and resurrection has brought us close. It calls us brother and sister, invites us to the table. And as we think about the gospel message and what Christ has done for us, we begin to see this beautiful parallel form up. Jesus was born among us. He was like us in every way, but without sin. He was kin to us. He was kinsman to us. And as a result, he has the right to redeem. Does he have the resources? He's the one who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who calmed the storm, who cast out demons. He is God himself. He has every imaginable resource. Yes, he does. Does he have the resolve? Our God picked up a cross, walked to Golgotha, and though he was without sin, was crucified for us, laid down his life for us as a perfect sacrifice, took our sins upon himself, spent three days in the grave, and conquered death. God has redeemed us perfectly. He became our kin. He came close to us. He became like us, and he has rescued us as only Jesus Christ could. Only he had the right and the resources, and the resolve to be our kin redeemer, our guardian redeemer. And what's even more beautiful about this, this great mystery of the gospel, the miracle of the Great Commission, the miracle of Pentecost, is this combination of God choosing us, and then our choices becoming important. That line that we've been coming back to over and over again, because we are chosen, our choices matter. And so what happens is that you and I, us together, have been invited in to this great story of redemption. And as we accept that invitation, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to change us, as we enter into radically transformed lives of discipleship after Jesus, and as we look around ourselves at a world that is filled with hurting and broken and rejected and lost people, then we can start applying these same questions to ourselves. And the results can be really transformative, can change the way that we look at the world around us. Do we have the right to redeem, to be forces for redemption in our world? When Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says that all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And on the basis of that authority, he says to us, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We have been given the right. And more than the right, we've been given the mandate. So question two, do we have the resources to redeem? Paul has this beautiful prayer in Ephesians. 
He prays this. He says, he prays that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We have the same power in us that raised Christ from the dead. That is the inheritance of belonging to God's family. We have been given every resource available for this calling. And then finally, do we have the resolve to redeem? That's what distinguishes what's-his-name from Boaz in the story of Ruth. Both of them had the right and the resources. Only Boaz made the choice, had the resolve to use that right and those resources to change Ruth and Naomi's lives forever. So that then is the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we have the resolve? And this can become a question that fuels guilt very quickly. It's not what I'm after here. That's not what I'm getting at. This question shouldn't come from a place of guilt or shame or a place of feeling like you're not measuring up or that you're not doing enough. The devil can take questions like this. Our human nature can take questions like this and turn them into millstones around our neck that fill us with doubt and inadequacy. This isn't about attaching a heavy weight to your shoulders or burdening ourselves with the expectations of having to go out and save the world. What it is about is recognizing what we have at our fingertips, that God himself has given us the right and the resources to be a force for reconciliation and redemption in our society, to welcome in the outcast, to lift up the beaten down, to provide safety and shelter, food and family for the people around us. We have been given the tools. The eyes of our hearts have been opened. We have been chosen by God, and it means that our small stories matter, that they become part of something bigger. So my prayer is that when we think of the story of Ruth, when we think of the character of Boaz, when we think of a God who is working all things together for good, who has redeemed us, that our hearts will be open for the ways God wants to use us to bring about that redemption in the world around us. That our resolve will be continually growing, that every day we will become softer and more open to the call of the Holy Spirit on us to create space, to open up our doors and our schedules and our wallets and our hearts to the pursuit of being redeemers in the world, to our kin, of following the example of Jesus as we go forward. Amen. As we close, as we leave from here, I want to pray over you again the prayer from Ephesians that Paul had. So let's bow. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, 
not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Amen. Go in peace.